Good morning. I realize that many of us this morning have the tragic attacks in Paris, Beirut, and Baghdad on our minds. Our world is mourning, our hearts are broken. I will actually not be preaching on these tragic events because words feel inadequate and cannot contain all that we are feeling at this somber and fragile moment. But let us hold a moment of silent prayer to uplift those who have died, those who have been injured, and their families who are grieving. Let us uplift them to God, our source of hope and everlasting love. Amen. In this sermon, I would like to focus on something that is a little closer to home. We begin, however, by engaging the story of someone who lived a long, long time ago and in a land far away from here. Our story begins in 1 Samuel. This is the book in the Old Testament that tells us about the establishment of the Israelite monarchy and recounts the reign of the, its first two kings, Saul and David. This pivotal chapter in ancient Israelite history begins with a single woman, Hannah. We learn early on that Hannah is barren, meaning that she cannot conceive a child. Now, barrenness is a theme that is common in the Old Testament. In the patriarchal society of ancient Israel, female identity was tied to childbearing. Infertility was considered to be a sign of divine punishment from God. Infertility is a difficult condition for many women, both in the ancient world and nowadays. And although Hannah is not alone in her infertility, she could not feel more isolated, alone, and misunderstood because of it. Hannah is mercilessly mocked by Peninnah, the other wife of her husband. Pastor Scott Hosey paints the scene of how it might have gone. Peninnah and Hannah are talking when suddenly Peninnah says something like, well, gotta run. Little Jimmy is eager to have Mommy read that new book that we bought the other day. But you know how it goes. Oh, wait, actually, you don't, do you? Pity. Oh, well. Catch you later. Or Peninnah and Hannah are folding laundry. And Peninnah keeps asking Hannah to help her fold the baby's onesies and little outfits. Could you help me, Hannah? Now this is how you fold the outfit. I have to tell you because, of course, you have no reason to know, do you? Then Hannah would, and then Peninnah would smile sweetly, flutter her eyes, and walk away. But Hannah would be left to grind her teeth just before once again bursting into tears and dissolving into abject sorrow over her infantile condition. 
Hannah cannot seem to find some comfort or support from her husband, Alcana, either. He realizes that something's wrong and tries to console her by bombarding her with questions. Why do you weep? Why aren't you eating? Why is your heart sad? Aren't I better than ten sons? There may be a few reasons for his line of questioning. Maybe he's self-absorbed and it's just all about him. Maybe he has a low emotional IQ, so he's not quite sure what to say when confronted with Hannah's intense emotions. Maybe he's just simply a cad. But often questions prove to be more harmful than helpful when someone is in anguish. So it's no wonder that Hannah finds herself entering a downward spiral of depression and when she can stand it no longer, Hannah takes advantage of a pilgrimage to the temple at Shiloh to beg for some divine help. At the temple, she fervently, silently prays, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but give to your servant a male child, and I will send him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall not drink wine nor intoxicants, and a razor shall never touch his head. Hannah has exhibit, exhibited multiple signs that are pointing to the fact that she is grieving. She can't find solace in those around her. She weeps uncontrollably. She has no appetite. And now she is bargaining with God in the hopes that God will look favorably on her and grant her a child. The old priest of the temple, Eli, abruptly in interrupts her prayer. How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. Eli appears to be uncomfortable with Hannah's actions. His words indicate that he's more concerned about maintaining the decorum of the temple than learning the reason for Hannah's weeping and fervent silent prayers. Sick and tired of being sick and tired, Hannah voices her deep-seated anguish. No, my lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation all this time. You can imagine Eli's eyes widening and his cheeks flushing as he realizes that the woman he has just accused of being drunk is actually a pious soul who's been pouring out her broken heart to God. Eli quickly blesses Hannah's prayers in a concerted effort to apologize for his accusations and to provide her with some comfort. Hannah then garners the strength to return home, and in due time, Hannah conceives and bears a son who she names Samuel which means he who comes from the Lord. Hannah is a woman to pay attention to. 
God manages to bring about something good in the birth of Samuel. He is the one who will go on to save Israel from itself and anoint its first two kings, the second of whom will become no less of a towering figure than David himself. Hannah provides the foundation for the construction of the identity of Israel's monarchy. It is out of her raw emotion and complete surrender to God that Israel, Israel's monarchy is formed. The monarchy, which is of great importance to the salvation story of the Hebrew people, is born out of barrenness, anguish, social convention, cultural limitations, ecstatic prayer, claiming of self-worth, and uninhibited engagement with God's faithfulness. Now, an ancient text such as this can easily feel distant and irrelevant to the lives that we lead. And a miracle story about the founding of the Israelite monarchy cannot directly speak to our lived experiences today. However, I was surprised to find that when I spent some time with our scripture passage for this week, I began to notice some themes around Hannah's marginalization that unnervingly resonated with what we've been witnessing on university campuses all around us recently. First, Hannah is marginalized by those around her. She is mercilessly mocked and disregarded because of her infertility. And we feel for Hannah the way she is treated by Peninnah, by Elkanah, by the tribe, even by the priest, Eli. Hannah, as countless people before and after her, turn to God, not because it is the right thing to do or because it guarantees a reward, but because there is no one else who will listen to her heartache. Everywhere Hannah goes, folks are quick to label her anguish and distress without taking the time to fully listen to why she is wailing, why she is fervently praying, why she is grieving. Also, Hannah's marginalization is based upon a social construct. In the patriarchal society of ancient Israel, the stigma is great for women who cannot conceive. Hannah is not just grieving because she cannot have a child. She is also grieving because her worth is based upon a social construction over which she has no control. Hannah is marginalized not because of any wrongdoing or transgression on her part, Instead, she is marginalized because of an attribute that society uses to distance and denigrate people by making them the other. Hannah's marginalization is cause of great grief and suffering to her. In Hannah's prayers, we hear a sincere expression of her sorrow and her dependence upon God. Her anguish is very real whether it comes from her desire for a child or a feeling of uselessness in a society that determines her worth upon her fertility. 
Hannah, however, has an acute awareness that God cares for those that society disregards. Whether she enters the temple is not to petition God or to perform a traditional sacrifice. Instead, she is there to lay bare her emotion and her pain because there is no one else who will listen to her. Those in authority disregard Hannah as she seeks help and reassurance. In the patriarchal society of ancient Israel, Elkanah, as Hannah's husband, has the power to put a stop to Peninnah's provoking. Instead, he pesters Hannah with hollow questions and shows little care about her answers besides those pertaining to his own self-image. Hannah then proceeds to the temple to find support, and there Eli mistakenly identifies her as drunk instead of inconsolable because of her infertility. Although this is a story about the founding of the Israelite monarchy, and it doesn't directly correlate to our lives today, there are elements that feel hauntingly recognizable. Pastor Rachel Heckenberg observes that Alcana and Eli disregard Hannah using the tool of disbelief. The suppressing tool of disbelief prevents Hannah from finding relief and freedom from her state of angst and grief. Heckenberg describes disbelief as an underpinning and perpetuating attitude for systems of oppression. It ranges in appearance from outright accusation that those naming the ingression are lying or exaggerating, to the more subtle insistence that those who have been or are being injured should publicly share their wounds and are obligated to teach those causing the harm how precisely they caused the injury to the respectability requirements that those who want to air their grievances against a system of power should follow the system's protocols and behavioral norms in order to properly protest. Now the situation that Hannah found herself in thousands of years ago is unequivocally and fundamentally different than where we find ourselves today. I don't want to claim otherwise. These days, we are keenly aware of how we marginalize people based upon race. And it is just cruel and wrong. The systems of oppression that perpetuate racism in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our universities, have a distinct, traumatic, and tragic history. But what strikes me, though, is just how much our collective story of humanity is tethered to experiences of barrenness, marginalization, violence, heartbreak, anguish, and grief. So where is the good news in that? The story ends with the miracle of God opening Hannah's womb so that she might conceive a child. But a fairy tale ending of yesteryear doesn't bring the good news for today. However, upon closer examination, I honed in on a moment in the passage 
before the miracle. The moment where Hannah pours out her soul to God. In her outpouring, Hannah affirms her unwavering faith in God, but she also declares her worthiness, her worthiness to have a child, her worthiness to be heard, her worthiness of love. Hannah has a critical consciousness of her worthiness and God's care for her, despite what society tells her. She has a God consciousness that is her own and not a product of her cultural identity. And that claiming of her faith, her truth, her worth becomes the source of her strength. And in that moment, this story becomes one of resurrection. Out of silence comes voice. Out of brokenness comes wholeness. Out of darkness comes light. Out of lies come truth. Out of, out of discrimination comes justice. Out of hatred comes love. And out of death comes life. And that, my friends, is the good news. Amen.